Father, we commit this day, we commit our hearts to you. May we receive what you have, the word that you have for us today. In your name we pray, amen. When I was a kid, my family moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania down to Tennessee, and uh, we weren't a church-going family. My dad, for all functional purposes, was an atheist, and my mom just didn't really ever think about it. And my mom was like, it's going to be real hard for my kids to make friends down in Tennessee, because in Tennessee, most people have the last name of, like, Smith or Jackson, and uh, our last name is Hanovich. You don't get a lot of Hanoviches in Tennessee, okay? Um, I remember when I moved to Philadelphia, I was driving through the Ukrainian part of Philadelphia, and I was like, look, it looks like my people. Every name is a name like mine. Down in Tennessee, you don't get that. Like, it's just, it doesn't happen. And so my mom was worried we wouldn't have any friends, having a weird last name. And so she was like, I'm going to take them down the street to the little brick Baptist church at the end of our street, and maybe they'll make some friends. And so she pulled up, she went in, and she was like, these people are weird. I should stay and make sure my kids are okay and nothing happens to them. And for the first time, she ended up hearing the good news of Jesus in a way that made sense to her. Sorry. That's okay. I'll just, that's like an amen sneeze. You know, it was the perfect. <laughs> She ended up putting her faith in Jesus and becoming a disciple of his way of life. And they gave her a Bible, and they said, you need to start reading this thing every day. And I remember I started going to Sunday school. They gave me my first Bible. I think we have a picture. This is not the actual copy, but this is what it was. It was this Bible. And uh, there was about eight pictures in this Bible. It was King James, so it was real hard to read. The font was real small. There were eight pictures in there. There was a picture of, like, Daniel in the lion's den, David facing Goliath, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, and so I would flip through and look at the pictures, but the word count was really overwhelming. There was a lot of pages, really small font. I liked to read. I was that weird kid who liked to read. So I sat down, I started trying to read this thing, started in Genesis, you know, got a couple pages in, and I found this to be a very hard book to read. I found the Bible very hard to read. For one, it wasn't one book, it's 66 books bound together, 40 different authors writing over 1,500 years, and I found it was confusing, sometimes it was a little boring, um, very often it was weird. This week, my sister sent me a text message, and she was working with a friend of hers, daughter, who was taking this class on Bible history, and she goes, uh, is there a Bible verse about a prophet cooking food over dung? <laughs> my sister was like, is that in the Bible? I was like, yes, that's in Ezekiel chapter 4. I told you, this book is weird sometimes. But every Sunday, growing up, I would hear the same thing over and over again. Reading your Bible is the most important thing you could do. And it was really, it, they kept reinforcing that it defined whether you were a good Christian or not, how much you read and studied this book. And I remember feeling frustrated, and I remember feeling fearful that something was wrong with me because reading the Bible was so hard. Anyone else ever feel like that? Frustrated that reading the Bible is so hard, it's so confusing, it's so weird. Fast forward to when I grew up and I became a minister, and person after person would quietly lament me, I know I'm supposed to read this book. I know I'm supposed to read it every day. I know that's what's expected of me, but it's so hard. Or they would say, it's so confusing. Or they would quietly just kind of, it's so boring. You know? I must be a sinful, bad Christian because I don't hunger for the word of God. You ever feel like this, like it's like kale? I know I'm supposed to be eating kale. Kale's a superfood, right? 
It's supposed to be really good for you. It'll make me healthier. It'll make me live longer. But I do not hunger for kale. I should. I want to hunger for kale. I know it's good for me, but it tastes so bad when I eat it. It's so bitter. It's so nasty. No one feels bad for struggling to read War and Peace. You know, if you picked up War and Peace and you're like, man, it's a slog. I'm having a hard time getting through. And no one would be judgmental. They'd be like, it is. It's a huge book. No one struggles or feels bad for struggling to read Moby Dick. The symbolism in Moby Dick is so dense, but there's some really boring sections where they're just at sea forever. Or the writings of James Joyce. I love James Joyce. I was an English major. James Joyce, though, he wrote um, crazy stuff. You go and read his stuff and you're like, what is he saying? It's like three pages of him describing a doorknob, and it's like the most confusing thing you've ever read in your life. And yet, when we approach the Bible, we assume that reading it should be easy. The Bible is a dense masterpiece written in the ancient past. It's translated from three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it's set in a culture very different than our own. Give yourself some grace when you read the Bible. This is not an easy, this is not a novel you pick up in an airport that you read on the plane as like, hey, this is a nice, easy read. It's hard to read, not because you're a bad Christian. Not because you're an idiot, not because you're just wicked and you hunger after the wrong things, but because it is a complex, complicated book. And I think most of us were handed a Bible, like I was, like my mom was, without any guidelines on how to read it, with only the expectation that we should read it, and because we didn't have any guidelines to read it, it's led to a lot of frustration and led to a lot of people misusing the Bible. And yet, for thousands of years, people reading the Bible have claimed to have an encounter with a transcendent God through this book. Now, if I was a cosmic evil that wanted to prevent people from encountering a transcendent God through the Bible, I wouldn't burn Bibles. Because as soon as you burn something, people are like, must be something good in that. Have you ever done this where, like, as soon as somebody puts band on a book, you're like, oh, I want to read that now. Like, what's in there that's so controversial that I can't read it, you know? As soon as people tell me that I can't have it, I want it. But if I was a cosmic evil who wanted to prevent people from encountering a transcendent God through the Bible, I would have people use the Bible so poorly that people would lose all respect for it and want nothing to do with it. And that's what I argue has exactly happened in our modern world. There's a joke that atheists are just people who have actually read the Bible, and they've seen how all the crazy and weird, confusing stuff in there, and so they're like, obviously I don't believe that. Uh, the argument is that those of us who believe only do so because we haven't really been exposed to what this book says. Occasionally I'll go onto an atheist website so I can see what their objections are, because I want to know. Like, I never just take for granted that I'm right. I always want to hear the counter-argument, and I want to make sure that what I believe stands up to logical, um, logical debate. Almost always, these websites will reference scripture out of context, not understanding how the passage they are referencing should be understood. And in some cases, they'll take a passage and they'll be like, isn't this weird? And they're absolutely right. There's some weird stuff in there. Remember that dung uh, story I told you in Ezekiel chapter 4? There's some weird stuff. There's some strange stories that make you think, why do we have this unusual detail? I would have rather heard more about this. Why was this included? But I think the problem is not that atheists have read it and people of faith haven't. I think the problem is that both atheists and people of faith have both approached this book the wrong way. If you want to be bored with an idea, 
you want people to be bored with an idea, don't ban it, don't burn it, make it cheap, common. And I've seen some approaches to the Bible that I think are unhelpful and sometimes even harmful to how people see the Bible. The way that some people of faith use their Bible has actually hurt the ability of, the, of people out there to have an encounter with a transcendent God through our Bibles. In our attempts to simplify a complex book, we've actually made the book sometimes unreadable or unusable. So, real quickly, I want to talk about some of the simplified approaches to reading the Bible that often lead to a shallow faith or to some people completely rejecting the faith because of the way we're using the Bible. First off is the magic eight ball approach to the Bible. Remember magic eight balls? It's a toy. You shake it up and you're like, should I date somebody? And you shake it and it says, ask me later. You know, or you shake it again, and you're like, should I go out tonight? And it's like, yes. You know, and it, yes, no, ask again, maybe later. And it had these real simple answers. And a lot of people I have seen approach the Bible exactly like that. I literally saw someone post on their Facebook page. I opened up the Bible app, and the verse of the day just gave me affirmation that I was making the right decision. Because it said to go and do this, and that's exactly what I was, and I'm like, that's not how the Bible works. The Bible's not a magic eight ball where you flip it open. I remember one young man who was a friend of mine. He was like, should I date this girl? And he would flip open the Bible and point to a verse and see what it said to get direction for his life. That is not how the Bible is designed to be used. The Bible is not a horoscope. The Bible is not tarot cards. You do not flip open the Bible randomly and point to a verse to make a decision. That's not how God communicates to us through the Bible. Using the Bible like a magic eight ball is a way for the Bible to be rejected and misused. The other way I see the Bible used is as a Western textbook. I would say the majority of churches I've been have used this approach. Um, we read the Bible like we would a textbook. We memorize answers. We gather information. We actually have study groups where we talk about it and compare our notes, what we're learning about it. It's a product of how we think in the Western world as a result of the Enlightenment. In this approach, we read the Bible to win arguments, not to become agents of love. We read to gather more information because knowing more is the goal, but the goal should be not just to know a lot about God, but to be with God, to become like God, and to do what God did. So the Western textbook is an incomplete goal because you get information, but you don't get any transformation. The next way that I see people misuse the Bible is as a rule book, and for years, this is how I read the Bible. Being raised in church, it's easy to begin, begin to see the Bible as a rule book. Like, you go and you have these lessons as a kid, and they're like, Jesus said don't lie, so you shouldn't lie, and you, you start to build up all these moral, moralistic rules. Um, people in churches I attended used to say, Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Well, first of all, Bible's a Latin word that means the book. It's not an acronym. And first of all, there's nothing basic about this book. Have you read it? It's crazy complicated. But the problem with this approach is you're always looking for rules in every passage that you read. When you read a passage of genealogies, you're like, okay, these names in here, we must get some lesson out of their lives because every passage is about a rule to follow. When we look to the Bible to give us magic rules to follow so that we will have a safe and comfortable life, we begin to form rules where there aren't any, and we become legalistic and judgmental. And I know people who have built all these rules out of the Bible because they see the whole book like a rule book, and if you keep the rules, you'll win the game, and the game is life. 
And that's a misuse of the Bible. That's not how it was intended. You start building rules out of things that were never meant to be rules. So uh, the last misuse I want to talk about today is the love letter approach. After moving on from the rule book approach, I began to read the Bible like a love letter. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of my ministry, this is how I talk about reading the Bible. Uh, if you go back and dig around online and find some old sermons of mine from 10 years ago, you'll see where I talk about the Bible as a love letter. Now, I think this was a better approach than the rule book. Maybe it was the natural next step from moving away from that approach. But reading as a love letter is incomplete. Because a love letter you read and you're like, this person loves me. I am complete, I am full, like, I am special because they love me, and there are parts of the Bible that work that way. The problem is, this approach doesn't work in every place, in every passage. There are sometimes when God wants us to do something. There are sometimes when God wants us to become something. The love letter approach makes the whole Bible about me feeling loved and accepted by God, which is true. But he doesn't love and accept us just to leave us where we are. He wants us to become like him and to do what he did. The problem with the love letter approach is it doesn't actually demand us to become like him. And it doesn't demand us to change our world like he wants. Okay. Bunch of misuses and approaches to the Bible. So if these approaches don't work, how should we be reading our Bible? Might I suggest that we read it like a newspaper? Now that sounds super weird. You're like, what? Newspaper? Nobody reads newspapers. What are those? Uh, that might seem weird, but let me explain. The Bible, like a newspaper, has different kinds of genres or sections that should be read and approached differently. You don't turn to the sports section in a newspaper. You know how like USA Today, they have the nice colors for the different sections. You don't turn to the sports sections and say, okay, I'm going to make some changes to my financial investment, so I'm going to look at the sports section and decide how to invest, right? Some people might, yeah, if they're, if they're into gambling, yep, <laughs> go birds. Um, you turn to the financial sets, uh, section if you want to make investments. Uh, you don't turn to the obituaries for advice on your relationships. You're going to turn to, like, the general interest or editorial section. You don't turn to the editorials when you're looking for world news. Why? Because if you're looking in the wrong spot in the wrong genre, you're going to begin to draw the wrong conclusions. We naturally recognize that each of these sections has valuable, true information, but it's not all written the same way. The style the author has chosen to write in helps communicate their intent, and it makes it easier for us to determine what they were trying to say in their original context. So many times in ministry in Tennessee, I would have people take a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read Ecclesiastes, it's an intense book. But it's very uh, philosophical. It's very, like, uh, not suggesting things that we apply to our life, but rather talking about, like, what is the whole meaning of life and wrestling with all the things that don't satisfy. And they would pull one verse out of Ecclesiastes, and they'd be like, okay, I'm trying to live this out. Because they were doing a rule book approach, where if they recognized the way that the author was writing in this section, they would approach it differently. I grew up in a church tradition that told me the genealogies in the book of Numbers were no less powerful nor important than the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Read those gene genealogies for a year and read the Sermon on the Mount for a year over and over every day and see which one transforms your life more. The Sermon on the Mount is... That's a ridiculous way to read the Bible, saying that they're, they're equal. They're both part of the Bible, they're both important, but they're serving different purposes. 
I believe the Bible is a collection of books that tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. When I read this book in any section, I am looking at it through the lens of Jesus. The Old Testament tells us about a people called out to be a platform for the Messiah, this God-man who would restore the relationship between heaven and earth, God and mankind. And the New Testament introduces us to Jesus the Messiah and the efforts of his apprentices, of, of the apprentices of his way of life to start communities committed to his kingdom vision. That's the Bible. And so no matter what section I turn to, I'm like, okay, the author is using a particular type of literature here, a particular genre. What's he trying to communicate by using that? What was he trying to say in his original context? And how is this about Jesus? And that's how I approach every passage of scripture. The whole Bible is centered around Jesus and his person and his mission and his people. <sighs> okay, that's an entire course on how to read the Bible in 15 minutes. Everybody still with me? Okay. So what's all that got to do with eschatology? Remember, that's our series, talking about the theology of end times. Uh, well, if we're reading the Bible the wrong way, when we come to eschatology or apocalyptic passages, we're going to draw the wrong conclusions. We're going to come up with some strange ideas and be distracted instead of being hopeful about the future so we can be obedient in the present. So this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of the book of Revelation and talk about how to read this kind of text in the Bible. We're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, go birds, and Laodicea. I turned, different Philadelphia, but still, you know. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the son, a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what's the historical context here? Well, John and the other Christians are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. In fact, John tells us here that he is suffering because of the kingdom, um, and he is on the island of Patmos, an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, now, he doesn't say anywhere in this book, boy, those Roman Empire guys are terrible people, right? Because his letter would never get out. He's imprisoned by the Romans on this island. But there are many references to the punishment, imprisonment, and suffering that he and the other churches are enduring. They would never let his letter be sent out, trying to encourage the churches 
despite their persecution by the Romans, if he said, the Roman Empire has done this, his letter would be burned. On a Sunday, it says he was on the Lord's Day, he was praying and speaking with God, and he has this vision of Jesus, this terrifying vision of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says the most repeated command in Scripture, do not be afraid. In the midst of your suffering, persecution, and patient endurance, I believe Jesus is still speaking through this passage to you and I today. He's still saying the same thing he said 2,000 years ago to John, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I was dead, and now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death. Lampstands, and you see stars in my hand, but these are symbols. They represent something else. This is a key that we're not just reading a narrative here like the Gospels. This is apocalyptic li literature. Jesus is uh, giving us insight. This is a vision. This is a special insight. This is Jesus and John cluing us in that what follows, the book of Revelation, is not just about what John sees. He's going to see symbols and images that are going to convey truth in a poetic way. Jesus himself says, hey, you're seeing lampstands, but I'm not talking about lampstands, I'm talking about uh, the, the churches. You're seeing stars, but I'm not just talking about stars, I'm talking about the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. Some translators say these are the pastors or the ministers or the bishops, or perhaps they are angelic beings watching over these churches. So let's talk about the weird reality behind most of the ap apocalyptic and eschatology passages in the Bible. Uh, John says he is in the spirit when he has this vision. Many of the eschatology passages in the Bible are a person experiencing a dream, a vision, or being in a trance. They're in some kind of altered state of mind. So when we examine what they say, we have to realize this is different than the narratives in the gospel when it's like Jesus was walking down a road. That's not some kind of like metaphor. Jesus was physically in Israel walking down a road. But the things they're seeing, they're saying, hey, this isn't a dream, this isn't a vision, this isn't some type of trance. This is different than reading in the book of Deuteronomy where God is laying out the, the national constitution for the nation of Israel. We have to wrestle with how Eastern cultures saw dreams. When we have a dream, we're like, this is a weird byproduct of our subconscious. Freud taught us that dreams are like some part of our id, some part of our unconscious coming to the surface. Like we can learn things about ourselves by our dreams. Um, that's very Western thinking. I had a dream this week about vampires. Uh, not these vampires. Not teenage angsty vampires from Twilight. I'm talking about scary vampires. You know, ones that were going to kill you, suck your blood, leave you for dead. Uh, and they were chasing me, and I kept trying to hide, and they kept finding me. And it probably had to do with, I had a lot of deadlines this week, a lot of deadlines at work, a lot of deadlines in my personal life. And I went to bed feeling stressed that I had too much to do, and I couldn't escape it. And uh, probably had a vampire dream as a result. Or it was the fact that I ate a slice of pizza real late at night, you know? probably one of those things. But the ancient Eastern cultures saw dreams not as a window into our own psyche, but as a window into the unseen realities of the world. They believed dreams gave you a cosmic picture of what was happening beyond what we could see with our waking eyes. They believed that dreams let you see into the unseen spiritual world all around us that we couldn't see with our normal waking eyes. Now that feels weird to us as Westerners. Just read through the Bible and see how many times there's dreams and visions. Look at just the birth story of Jesus. People are having dreams and visions of angels and like, it's just like crazy how much, and we just get used to it after a while and we don't think about it. 
In Acts 2.17, Peter's standing up after the day of Pentecost, and he says this. He's quoting from the book of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. When the Holy Spirit comes, people will have prophecy and dreams and visions. And I'm just telling you, as a modern educated westerner that feels super weird to me like i'm very uncomfortable with that if you walk up and tell me you had a dream i'm gonna go like oh great i've got to hear about this um i'm not gonna sit and listen intently because i expect that god has revealed some hidden reality to you but in the first century in this eastern culture they saw dreams as a window into what was happening all around us unseen in the world It's important to note, because I think sometimes people talk about um, apocalyptic and eschatology passages of Scripture as if God picked people up, sat them down in front of a modern TV, and showed them pictures on CNN, and was like, here, here's some news reports from the future, go back and write about what you saw. But that isn't what is happening. It's a dream, it's a vision, it's a trance. Jesus is saying you're seeing stars and candlesticks, but you're seeing these things because they represent something else. They represent the messengers of the seven churches. They represent the churches themselves that are going to receive this letter. Imagine being persecuted by Rome. They're imprisoning you. They're taking over. They're trying to look for your meetings. You're feeling all this pressure. Maybe you're losing your business. And then you get a letter from John saying that Jesus is right there with the churches. He's standing amongst the candlesticks. He says, the leaders of these churches, the messengers, I'm holding them in my hand. Be brave. Be courageous. I'm never going to let you go. And then what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. Getting such a letter would make you feel hopeful about the future and help you be obedient in the present. So let's talk about some of the ways Christians throughout history have read apocalyptic passages in the Bible. Michael Gorman is a theologian. He wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And he says in historic Christianity, there are five ways that people interpret apocalyptic or eschatology passages in the Bible, and they really center around two ideas, time and intent. First of all, with time, some people read these passages and say they all happened in the past. They're all symbolic imagery talking about things that happened in the past. Some people say they're happening right now in the present, like whenever they were written, that's what they were about. And then some people say they're about the future. The other is intent. Some people say that these passages are codes, that they're coded messages, and you have to interpret the codes in order to figure out what they're really saying. Like, God wanted to give us this message, but he didn't want to make it too easy for us, and so we got to interpret the codes. The other way of seeing it is as a lens, that these are symbols to allow us to see beyond what we see with our physical eyes, to know things that are going on all the time but are unseen to our human eyes. Now, here's the theological names of the interpretive views based on these ideas of time and intent. I'm going to do these quickly because I know you guys are bored by the the real seminary things, but some people view these, uh, one view is predictive futurist. This sees any apocalyptic or eschatology passage as a code. The author and the original audience didn't know what they were reading. They didn't even know what they were writing because it was all about the future. And so John sends out this letter and the churches get in, they're like, This is for 2023, so this means nothing to me. Thanks, John. Um, It's no good. And John wrote it, and he's like, well, that was a weird trance, you know? And he's like, I don't know what that means, and he sends it out. This is one of the most popular views in American Christianity today, the predictive futurist. 
The people before us, it wasn't for them, it's only for us. The preterist view also views the text as a code, but they view it as all happening in the past, especially the first century. So they look at the Antichrist and they're like, that's the Roman centurion who came into the temple and sacrificed the pig. They see everything in the past, nothing in the present, nothing for the future. This is just a symbolic way to talk about the past. And so between the predictive futurist and the preterist view, those are the most popular views in American Christianity today. <coughs> Three other views. The theopoetic view. Mythic language and symbolic imagery is used to reveal unseen realities that are always happening in our world. They reveal things that were happening back then and things that are happening today, this battle between God and the devil, good and evil, light and dark. The other approach is theopolitical. This view sees it as a political protest to write a coded critique of the Roman Empire and any oppressive government throughout time. This approach sees John as like, I hate the Roman Empire, they've imprisoned me, I really want to trash them, they're never going to deliver my letter if I trash them, I'm going to write a coded message about how the Roman Empire is garbage, and then distribute it to all the churches, and then the churches are going to get all fired up about the Roman Empire being garbage. And throughout history, Christians will read this and be against oppressive governments. That is the um, theopolitical view. Finally, the last perspective on apocalyptic and eschatology pastors is the pastoral prophetic view. This is that it was written for a real moment in the past that John wrote to seven literal churches. He wrote to actually impact them and encourage them. But what was written was intended to speak to every generation by helping us see through imagery the battle between good and evil at work in every generation. Personally, I have been currently persuaded from a number of biblical scholars that the most profitable way to read these texts is as theopoetic or pastoral prophetic. In that view, when we read in Daniel or the Minor Prophets or Revelation, we are reading real messages to an actual people experiencing real historic events. It was for them, it was helpful to them, but the message is about the unseen realities that are happening at all times. Whether we read it now, or they read it back 2,000 years ago, or they read it 2,000 years in the future, it's talking about a real unseen battle, and the message can actually apply to all of us. The forces of darkness that are working through world structures in their day are also at work in our day, and will be at work in our children's and grandchildren's and future generations' day. I believe these passages are a lens to let us see beyond the darkness pain and violence in our present world, in our present story, and allow us to see the unseen world where the kingdom of darkness is crumbling and the kingdom of Jesus is rushing in. Sometimes when I watch the news, sometimes when I live my week, sometimes when I just walk around my community, it feels like the darkness is winning, and I read books like Revelation, and it says, no, you can't see it, but the darkness is crumbling all around you, and the kingdom of God is rushing in. If you just had eyes to see what John was seeing, you would see the kingdom of darkness is crumbling, and the kingdom of Jesus is coming quickly. Now, if you hold to one of these other views, I don't think that's a problem. Lots of Christians have taken different ways of interpreting these passages, but I wanted you to let you know what's been most profitable for me and where I'm coming from. Wise and godly Christians throughout history have taken different positions on how to read these passages, but I have found this approach to be most helpful or most effective at helping me be hopeful about the future and obedient in the present. And I believe that was the original author's and God's chief objective in writing these passages and including them in the scriptures. 
As we close today, I want to just end with a few simple practical guidelines on how to read the Bible. Before 500 years ago, no one read their Bible every day. What? I know. Unless you were a monk in a monastery, no one read their Bible on their own because it didn't exist in a format where they had it in their homes. What happened 500 years ago that changed everything? The printing press. That's right. The school teacher knows. The printing press. Um, now the Bible could be mass-produced. People could have it in their own. Before then, for the majority of the Christian story, most people experienced the Bible in community. People heard it read aloud, and they discussed it in a spiritual gathering. I think having personal copies is a great gift. I love having it on my phone. It's amazing. But the book is designed to be read aloud and understood in community. Sometimes we struggle with reading the Bible because we're trying to read it differently than Christians have for thousands of years. Memorizing the Bible, learning all the facts and details is not as important as being formed by the Bible. I'm going to say that again because that's an important statement. Memorizing the Bible, learning all the facts and details is not as important as being formed by the Bible. Remember the Apostle Paul, what did he say? If I have all knowledge, but I do not have love, I am worthless. Like, so many times churches have made memorizing the Bible and learning all the facts more important than being formed by the Bible. Here's Dallas Willard. It is better in one year to have 10 good verses transferred into the substance of our lives than to have every word of the Bible flash before your eyes. Should you read the Bible every year? I have no problem with it. I think that's a good thing. But if you read the Bible and you're not changed by the Bible, that's a complete waste of your time. I would rather you read 10 verses and actually apply them into your life, actually have an encounter with God through them, than to say, hey, everybody on social media, I read the Bible this year. I'm going to read it twice next year because I'm a super Christian and you're not. You know, that does not matter. The goal of the Bible is to encounter God and to become like him, to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. The goal of reading the Bible is not to gather more information, but to encounter God. It is written as Jewish meditation literature, so the goal is not to read a lot, but to meditate and marinate on the words, to read prayerfully, to sit quietly with it and let God speak. We often read the Bible like a school assignment, rushing to get done, instead of approaching it as the agreed-upon meeting place to encounter Jesus. Most Bible apps have an option to have it read to you, Use it. Start in Psalms and listen to a psalm over and over again throughout the day. Take time after hearing it to sit and listen to God. Think about the words throughout the day. Call them to mind as you pray and process it in God's company. For thousands of years, people have listened to the words of this book and had an encounter with the transcendent, loving God. And I believe he's still speaking through this book today. If we use it correctly, we can have an encounter with a transcendent, loving God. He's still saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Lord Jesus, thank you that we have the Bible. Thank you that these words have been preserved. And thank you that somehow this combination of heaven and earth, God and human authors coming together to create these books, these letters, these narratives, these histories, through them you, we can encounter you. 
We are amazed at that. Lord, that boggles our mind. Forgive me for times that I have misused this book to win an argument. I have misused this book in order to afflict judgment on someone. I have misused this book to make myself feel better instead of recognizing this for what it is. This is a portal. This is a meeting place between heaven and earth where we can encounter you. God, may we open up this word. May we listen to its words. May we talk about it in community. May we meditate and marinate on it. So